Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, as Cole has mentioned today, we are starting a new series on the book of Nehemiah called Brick by Brick. Let me just pray. Cole did pray, but I'll just pray quickly as we get started. God, just thank you for this. the words that I have would be one of us as we dive into this story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was first asked to kick off this series uh, and speak on Nehemiah, I was, my first response was sort of, Nehemiah? <laughs> uh, really? Sorry, Lois. Um, and, uh, you know, in lots of ways, Nehemiah, I think, is one of the more sort of obscure and maybe forgotten characters in the Old Testament. I mean, he's not like people like Abraham or Isaac or Moses or Daniel or Job, just to name a few. People who had exciting stories around them, so the kind of stories you would hear uh, in Sunday school, so that you could actually know a little bit about who they were. I mean, in fact, the main thing that Nehemiah is known for is building a wall, um, which is obviously why he wasn't talked about that much in Sunday school. Um, and so that's probably why he was sort of, he's been passed over in our minds for some of the more kind of exciting characters. But nevertheless, you know, a story about building a wall seem to be like the perfect fit for a sermon series here at Forest View, Church Without Walls. Um, so um, we're just going to dive in, and uh, I think that we'll find as we do that that Nehemiah's ordinariness is part of what makes him significant for us. Now to begin, because of Nehemiah's sort of maybe lesser known qualities and status, I thought maybe we'd start with a brief sketch of where the book fits in the wider biblical story. So Nehemiah's story takes place at the end of the Babylonian exile. Now exile is a theme that runs throughout the Hebrew scriptures and beginning in Genesis 3 where we see Adam and Eve who are forced to leave Eden um, and they're exiled from, from that garden. And over time, as the Israelites leave Egypt, another place where they were in a sense exiled from uh, their land, um, they leave, and with, through Moses' leadership, they form a covenant with God. They make a promise. They make a covenant relationship. He will be their God, and they will be his people. And there are blessings um, that go with this. If you journey with God and his ways, things will go well for you. But on the other hand, if you choose uh, to go your own way, then there may be some things that don't go so well. And one of those things was that... Um, they would find themselves, the warning is they will find themselves scattered amongst the nations, that they will lose their land and they will be scattered. So, when the Babylonians, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, conquer and plunder Jerusalem, destroy its walls, destroy the temple, take the people or many of the people away, the prophets understand this to be a direct result of God's, uh, well, direct result of Israelites' unfaithfulness, their covenant unfaithfulness, their breaking of the covenant. But amongst, amongst those sort of uh, prophetic sort of utterances of here's what consequence, there is also hope that one day the people will be restored to their place, and the Israelites are in Babylon for 70 years. Now, historically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar eventually he dies. And about 20 years later, his empire, the Babylonian Empire, is conquered 
by the Persians under King Cyrus. And Cyrus was something of an enlightened leader, enlightened leader, because he had a policy where all these people who had been deported by Nebuchadnezzar could return to their homelands. And that brings us to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the two books in the, in the Hebrew scriptures which detail the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem. And in fact, scholars, many scholars believe that Ezra and Nehemiah were actually originally one book that got separated later on. But here's what we see, and I've got a little cartoon here to help us. Um, what we see in these books is that the return to Jerusalem takes place in three waves. So in the first wave, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, I got a lot of great words today to say during this. Um, the people return to Jerusalem and the temple gets rebuilt. Sometime later, Ezra is sent to do some investigating, some spiritual investigating of where the people are at and to teach the law. And then the third wave, Nehemiah is sent to rebuild the city walls. Now, in all of these stories, it's actually the Persian king who sends the person. They are all commissioned to go, um, to go and do this. And you can see in this cartoon, there are a few other pictures of where biblical things fit. You've got Esther up there, and you have Haggai and Zechariah down here. So you've got some picture of where these stories fall amongst the larger um, library of Scripture, as it were. Now, I've got another slide here that I'm pretty sure violates all of Cole's uh, artistic kind of timeline, the best I could do. So sorry, Cole, we've got to deal with it. It won't be up there very long. But um, what you can see on this is that Nehemiah goes to build the wall about 100 years after the first wave of people have returned to Jerusalem. So there's a pretty large gap there. People have been living in this city for a while. You, can all, you also see that Nehemiah is the final, he is the last historical book within the Hebrew Scriptures. After Nehemiah, we have Malachi do some prophecy, and then there is 400 years of silence until John the Baptist, where there is no new speaking from God. And so Nehemiah is sort of wraps up the history of Israel up to that point, at least in the Scriptures. Now, one thing that's interesting to note, and if we go back to this cartoon, there you go, Cole, you're probably happy now, um, that while each of these waves kind of begin in great promise, um, as you can kind of see, there's major opposition that arises in each case. Um, and actually, each of the conflict, each of these waves ends sort of in disappointment and conflict. The end of Nehemiah, if we got all the way to the end of Nehemiah book, we would discover that Nehemiah ends frustrated, fighting with people, pulling out their hair, and, I'm not joking, and all the while asking God to remember that at least... I tried. The physical exile may have been over, but the human heart remained unchanged. Israel was still not. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and so in the larger arc of the biblical narrative, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, despite all that gets accomplished, point to the need for a more radical rescue. They point to the need for the Messiah, and we wait 400 years before that is announced. Okay, so that's all the history we're going to talk about today. We'll get that out of the way. And so now we want to jump into the story itself, into the book, 
And, I'm, and as we watch it unfold, I want us to consider what it's saying to us today as we sit here in Forest View at this time. So we're going to jump in uh, and read. We're actually going to read quite a bit of scripture today, but I'm going to read and talk about it at the same time, so we won't all stand because then you'll kind of be awkward. So, but I do like the standing for scripture, so I will say that. Um, so here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll start with verses 1 to 4. So, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't understand. Uh, what do these words mean? So I got a little research here. So the month of Kislev is helpful, and this will be actually very significant as we go through the story, is what we would call in our Gregorian calendar sort of somewhere in between like part of November and December. So we're talking about like those months. The citadel of Susa was the winter capital of Persia. So he's, at the, he's in the palace, winter capital. Then we have Hanani. We don't know whether Hanani or Hanani, whatever you want to say, is his brother like physically, or just one of the brothers. But they come. We don't know why they're there. We also don't know why Nehemiah has stayed in Persia. People have gone back for over 100 years. Why has he stayed behind? We don't know the answer to that. Is he, was he conscripted into the service of the king? Did he just have a good thing going and didn't want to leave? We don't know. We know that some of his family left, at least, we think. Um, but he stayed behind. So he questions them about the state of Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So the report is bleak. In ancient times, an unwalled city was a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense. An unwalled city was almost a backwater town because nothing valuable could be kept in it because there was no way to keep it safe. It could be stolen easily. The temple could be rebuilt as it was, but it couldn't be made beautiful because anything beautiful would have been stolen and taken by the enemies. And so the people would have lived in constant stress and fear, and disgrace. They may have been allowed to return, but they were still a defeated people, living only as survivors. And so on hearing this news, Nehemiah weeps, and he mourns, and he fasts. But what I found interesting to consider is that this probably wasn't new news to him. I mean, the first wave of Israelites had been back in Jerusalem for almost 100 years. And as someone who, had spent, who spent significant and considerable time as a trusted official in the king's court, I'm pretty sure he would have had a pretty good sense of what was happening across the empire and the state of things. And so perhaps this was a reality that he had been trying to ignore something he wanted to keep at a safe distance, something that was too close to home and he didn't want to have to face. But now as his brother and his fellow countrymen come and as he looks them in the eye and as he sees the look on their faces and as he hears the pain in their voices, 
He can't ignore it anymore. He has to do something and it hits him and the weight of it, he feels it and he weeps. Now I think for us living here in 2018, we live probably in the most, compared to any other time in history, we have more instantaneous access to tragedy and uh, disaster happening around the world. We can know about that at any minute almost. We can find out when things happen, we can know about them almost out of the far corner of the world, we can know about them very quickly, almost instantaneously. And almost because of that access, it's kind of overwhelming. It's almost paralyzing. And it's easier just to function, to keep things at arm's length, to not get involved. I mean, what, what could we do anyways? The problems are, in this world are too big for us. Plus, you know, what would it cost me to get involved? I'm pretty comfortable and happy where I am right now, thank you. And this could very well have been Nehemiah's thought process before this encounter with his brother and his friends. Maybe he was thinking, you know, it's too bad about how things are going back there in Jerusalem. But I've got a lot of things going on here in Persia that I'm invested in. I've got an important and prestigious job and a lot of great opportunities. And you know what? Like, I have a lot of things to be focusing on, so I just can't give that any attention. And I wonder, and we don't know the story for sure, but I wonder, my wonderings are if that's not how Nehemiah was living until God placed Jerusalem on his heart to such a degree that he couldn't ignore it anymore and he knew that he had to do something. So instead of trying to push that aside as maybe he had been doing in the past, he chose to embrace it and this led him to prayer. He doesn't just rush into action, but he pauses. And as we're going to discover as the story goes on, he actually pauses for quite some time to bring this situation before God. So let's just see how the story unfolds. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And so here we begin with Nehemiah acknowledging God and his character, who God is, his goodness, that he is a faithful covenant-keeping God. But he goes on to say, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled, people are at the farthest horizon I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so he recognizes that God is faithful, but the people have been unfaithful. That this disgrace and situation they find themselves in is a result of their wickedness, of the sin, of their inability or their unwillingness to keep the covenant. And then he goes on to begin praying God's promises back to him. 
He begins to take God's words about, if we're, people are faithful, you will bring us back. Is that, that's what you said. I'm willing to claim that prayer, and I'm going to start praying it to you. And so, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And so as he is praying, and again we'll see it's been praying for, this is a prayer he's been praying for some time. Nehemiah comes to realize that God may be asking something of him. That he's been called not just to be sympathetic, but to get involved, to take action. God has given him a burden, and he needed to respond to it. And he was in a perfect position to do so, because after all, he was cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearers were an important officials. It was an important position, and here's why. They were the ones who kind of chose and then had the, had the luxury of sampling uh, the wine or other things before the king got it in order to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Now, you might think that's actually a kind of a bad job, but the cupbearer had to be a very trustworthy person. The king had to have full confidence in them because it would be very easy to assassinate the king if your cupbearer could be bought. And so cupbearers, therefore, were actually paid quite well because you needed to like, keep them happy and you needed to be able to trust them. And because they trusted them so well, they were often advisors. They, they would go, the king would ask the cupbearer for advice on things he was dealing with and thinking about. And so Nehemiah is in a very trusted position, a position where he has a voice and an opportunity. And he, as he's been praying, he begins to realize that God has set him up for this time. So now we get into chapter two. Uh, my responsibility today is chapter one and the first bit of chapter two, so here we go. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna see that this cupbearer is about to take action. And here's what he does. In the month of Nisan, I'm just going to pause there just to get this thing. Um, so that in our calendar is March or April. So if we realize that in Kislev, that was November or December, we realize that he's been spending four months praying. This prayer that he's been praying has taken him four months, and after four months, he's ready to act. If he didn't just rush in, there's four months of, of prayer and burden and longing behind everything that happens here. So, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Now, just again, as we have the full context, why is he afraid, very much afraid at this moment? And that is because you were always supposed to feel happy in the presence of the king. I mean, you were lucky enough to be in the presence of the king. You can't come to the king with a sad face. You were one of the honored and blessed people who the king led into his presence. You should always be happy. In the, you were, it was a big deal. 
you would never be sad in front of the king. And so he was afraid that the king might say, you're sad? Why are you sad? Off with his head. Very, it's a very serious thing that could happen. But he knew that he needed to show the king how, he was, how his heart was feeling so that he would have an opportunity to speak. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. And here, he's been praying for four months. And now the thing that he has been praying for has arrived. God has placed it on his heart that there's something for him to do. And so now he is willing to be the answer to his own prayers. And he is willing to go and speak to the king and then not only speak, but to go to Jerusalem himself. And so, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Cavalry, not cavalry, it's different. Um, <laughs> to ask for assistance for some... So not only does he ask to go, but he feels compelled to ask for assistance, for some money, for some resources, for some letters. And God is with him, and these things are granted. So that is the first part of the story we're going to look at, and Doug is going to be unpacking uh, the rest of, um, a good chunk of the rest of Nehemiah, maybe not the whole thing, but um, over the next few weeks. So that's the story we're going to look at today. Um, and as we do that, I want to suggest to you that there are two big themes that we can take from it, that we can apply, that we can kind of wrestle with this morning. And so those themes are prayer and action. Um, we're going to start with prayer. That's where Nehemiah started. Because prayer is central to Nehemiah's story. Once God had gotten Nehemiah's attention, it was in prayer that God formed his heart and his resolve and helped to prepare him for what he had to do with the courage and the strength and the words and the moment. Now, as, our, as it's been mentioned already today, as a church family, we are just beginning our journey into 100 days of prayer. Not quite four months, but not close. Um, and as we pray together as a family, whether you're involved in the triplets or whether you are, can just join in on your own as you've been praying, we're inviting God to shape us as individuals, but also as a body. 
And we were asking him to show us what he has for us to do. How is this particular collection of God's people called to grow as Christ followers and to be a faithful presence here where we're planted in Halton and then beyond? And so Nehemiah's story, I think, is a call for us to enter into this journey with perseverance and expectation, waiting on God to lead us and to see what God will do and for us then to be willing to step in. And part of the praying may be us getting ready to do that. But I think beyond this 100 days of prayer, which is here for us to journey with together, Nehemiah's story is also a challenge for us as just individual Christ followers as we journey in our own relationship with God and try to be faithful. What is God trying to get your attention about? What has God placed on your heart? What is God placing on your heart? What has God placed on your heart that you so often try to ignore or push aside or keep at arm's length? And what in his strength is he asking you to do about it? Is he asking me to do about it? Nehemiah's story conjures up and brings up all these things. We Nehemiah is just an ordinary guy. He had a great job, I guess, and he was trustworthy. But it would have been easy for him just to say, I'm so sorry I hear about what's happening in Jerusalem, and to say, I can't do anything about it, I'll pray for you. But the call was for him to do something. So that brings us right to our second theme, and that's action. Nehemiah prayed, but he also did some stuff. And in fact, I think we could summarize the story we've just read in Nehemiah by saying this. Nehemiah did not act without prayer or pray without acting. It's pithy. Um, Or maybe not, but um, hopefully you can remember that at least. At the very least, you can remember that. Nehemiah did not act without prayer or pray without acting. Because I think one of the things we see in Nehemiah is that God is looking for human partners. And in fact, this is a theme we see throughout Scripture that God chooses to use people to accomplish his purposes. God, who has the power to do it all on his own, would rather involve us, invites us to be part of what he's doing, gives us a role to play, uses our talents and, our, and even like our places and positions, our personalities. And that's what it means to be the body of Christ, that we all come with these different things, but God wants to use people. And so God had plans for Nehemiah. I think God looked when he saw the situation, he saw Nehemiah is very well placed to be helpful in this circumstance. But Nehemiah had to awaken to that need and had to step into it himself. He had to be willing. And he needed to set some things aside, his job and his time in Persia and all that, in order to fully align his own priorities with God's and get on God's agenda. Now, it's interesting, I think that Jesus says something very similar, has a kind of a similar thought about life and about what it means to follow God. Let's just look at that. This may be another slide that Cole won't like as much, but anyway, we'll try. Um, So, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Again, the need is great. The need is everywhere. We are called to be workers as God's people. There is great need all around us. And Jesus, feeling the weight of it, invites his disciples to see it too and to do something. And that's our calling. And I think because the human condition remains the same, as it, the same now as it was in the time of Nehemiah, the ruins that God invites us into rebuilding can be both structural and personal. Structural in the sense that there are, in our world, unjust and sinful systems that oppress and need to be stand out against with the good news of Christ. But personal in the sense that the brokenness that we all face as a result of living in a fallen world has permeated all of our lives. You know, binding the brokenhearted, loving other people in the midst of their brokenness, helping restore those who are struggling with sin, allowing others to help restore us when we are too wander off the path. And as we talked about when we did our series on Romans 12, things like practicing generosity, hospitality, as people to be up in all their variety of forms. These are the kind of things that God is calling his people to be up to in a world of deep need. But again, I think it's easy for us to lose sight and to just kind of be tunnel visioned in our own life. And so in this story, we have this picture of prayer and action in Nehemiah's life. An ordinary guy who got burdened with something and who prayed about it and then who chose to be willing to act knowing that God was with him. And that this, after four months of prayer, was what God was calling him into. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a minute to share some examples of people who were compelled to action in their particular time and place. So I'm going to start with Mother Teresa, who um, you know, felt the call when she was very young, a teenager really, to go to India, and who left her family and never saw them again. And then was teaching there, and while she was there, felt this call of God very strongly to go and be my light amongst the poorest of the poor. And chose to leave the kind of confines and, uh, of her monastery life that had its, you know, its structure and it had its like, safety, and to go and live amongst the poor. And the rest of that story is history as she goes and steps out and serves the dying and the sick. Beautiful story. Or Martin Luther King Jr., who has a dream, a dream, a God-given dream about racial reconciliation, about equality, and who was willing to put his life on the line to speak about that, a dream that is like rooted in the scripture to bring about uh, social justice in this area of racial relations. Beautiful story. Oscar Romero from El Salvador. In a country, he was the archbishop. He became archbishop, and people originally thought he was picked because he was sort of like, a kind of, for lack of a better word, like someone who was conservative in the sense that he would be on the side of the establishment. But a country where, and this, this quote, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally get this wrong, but so you'll just get the idea. Where a country where about 99% of the wealth was in the hands of like 1% of the people, Oscar Romero realized that the gospel has something to say about the injustice of the poor in this country. And he needed to speak out about that. He needed to challenge power and needed to 
step into that. And he himself was assassinated while giving, breaking the bread for communion. And he, people came in the church and assassinated him. Now, each of these people were just regular people. And I think we do a disservice sometimes when we kind of put them on pedestals and think of how great they were. We do them a disservice, we do ourselves a disservice, we do God a disservice. They were people who in their time and place saw the need, allowed it to impact them, and then were willing to step into it. But just to bring it a little bit closer to home, I'm going to give you a few more examples that have forest view come. So here's Andy Grinberg up in Muskrat Dam. He went to Muskrat Dam the first time just because it looked like a good, fun thing to do. He saw a video, this would be fun. But then as he went, and over time, God placed it on his heart. And the people became part of his family, in a sense, became put on his heart. And he has the opportunity to go and share God's love and to invite others from our congregation to go be a part of that. Heather Moore, who never thought she would go to a developing country and yet went to Ecuador, and as she spent some time at, using her nursing skills at a camp for youth there, found that God was placing that place and those people on her heart. And so eventually spent, went for a year, turned into three and she was changed, and she was able to be God's presence there. This is Bethany Nolson, who you might not know, but in 2014, uh, when we went to Peru, she came on the trip. So she was part of doing at that time. Our church didn't have the opportunity to do a trip like we had doing at that time. And there's some camp connections there for Pioneer, and so we were asked if we would do that, we brought her. So Bethany, this was her grade 12 year, she had been that year struggling with sort of the materialism of culture, a lot of the injustice in the world, and didn't know what to do with it. And in Peru, really felt God saying, you need to do something, like I'm placing this, this was on her heart deeply. When she came back, she came back in the midst of prom season, and she found herself so discouraged about the amount of money and sort of backfighting, and that's what prom was doing in terms of like her peers. And so she came up with this idea, along with her mother actually, called Prom with a Purpose. She had also at that time been feeling really uh, passionate and like on her heart about human trafficking issues. And so now Prom with a Purpose is going to be its fifth year coming up. Um, is a prom event for people and where, they do, where they raise money for human trafficking and where uh, they also give information people can learn about it. And it's a great fun night with a dinner and dance and all sorts of great things. All because she listened yeah. God was burdening her. I've talked about uh, my experiences in Peru before and meeting Israel. Um, and he's a guy that I met when he was about 15 and who I knew had potential and God put him on my heart. And we were able to, uh, over the course of several number of years, raise money for him to go to university. And so living came from, uh, like, came from a, you know, a very poor background but has been able to go to university, is married, there's his wife and his daughter. He's serving God, loves God, has a great job, um, is able to support a lot of his family, a lot of change is happening because of that. Not to mention Mo and Joe Morrison, who our church has partnered with, who felt the call. Joanna knew she wanted to go to Africa before they were even married. 
and Mo eventually came along and to go and, and do that. Or think about the people from our congregation who helped settle Syrian refugees uh, in our midst, to come to Canada, welcoming them. Or people who've invested their time in next door space in that community. These are all people just like us. In fact, these people are us. Now, we can't bear all the burdens of the world. That is too much, and God's not asking us to do that. But as followers of Jesus, each of us is called to do something. We are workers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We are called into that battle, that working, that job. And it's interesting because we're all wired differently. And so the beauty of this as the body is that as we, are, you know, we don't all have to be passionate necessarily about the same things. Think of all the different things that people were passionate about there in ways that through which, you know, forestry in some ways was connected to that. But it's beautiful whole that comes together as we see each one of us take seriously the call of us as individuals, as followers of Jesus, to do something. To allow God to place within our hearts whatever it might be that he's burdening with us with. But I know, like my own life, and I'm sure you would agree, can admit and you can relate that in our, despite our best intentions, if we're honest, we know that we often fail to act on the things that God places on our hearts. It's just easier, safer to ignore them. Safer on one level, maybe not spiritually. But um, and so I, this is like a little tool I wanted to give you. I don't. I'm a little bit. I haven't been totally sure, but God put this on my heart, I guess, as it were, to share this. So I'm going to share it. Um, and this is a tool actually more used from like make me remember business stuff, but I think it can be applied here. So it's called a force field analysis. And I wish it had something to do with Star Wars, but it doesn't. Um, but if it did, that would be even better. Um, and so what this means is that like, I just, in the middle, instead of proposed change, think about like, what does God, what has God been kind of keep coming back to or you notice? Like what need, big or small, do you think you kind of keep coming back to or you notice? Um, and you can actually draw this yourself, and uh, I'm giving this tool is something you can actually like do um, and think about on your own. And so then you realize that there are forces on one level that are pushing you towards doing that thing, and there are forces on the other side that are keeping you from doing it. And so the goal is to brainstorm for yourself, like what are those forces? And so I just kind of made a very rough brainstorm and added them to here. So like potentially. Prayer is a force for change for you. As you pray about something, you realize that God is motivating you. But prayer may also be a force against change because you realize I'm not really praying that much. I'm not giving this the prayer that it needs. Or, you know, God and your understanding of who God is and what God's doing in the world is a force for change. And you want to follow God. That's really important to you. Or maybe, you know, you feel convicted. Like, I, God has put that on my heart and I know I should do something about it. And that, that is a motivation and then you have maybe some accountability. Maybe there are people in your life who know that or you could tell who could be accountability to you and help you or you could pool together resources. I'm just brainstorming. You, you could think about your own life and your own things. On the other side are things like time. I don't have the time to do that. Where am I going to fit that in? I, I really wish I could do that, but I don't know how to do that. Or where to start? It seems too big. I don't know what to do. Or I'm just distractions. There's so many helpful, you know, I, I'm trying to crush series of Netflix or whatever I'm trying to do, like I'm just distracted. Um, and so, you know, and you can think of more. And these things don't always necessarily, the arrows aren't always the same length. Some of those 
both on both sides are larger than others. But the goal then with this kind of exercise is for you to sit down and say, like, what things in my life do I need to enhance so that I'm more likely to do this? And what things do I need to, like, deal with so that I'm more likely to step into what God has? That's like a very practical tool. Um, I don't know if it's helpful. I felt like I should share it. So, you know, but I think you could draw this yourself and you could work at it and think about, like, what has God placed in your heart? How could you, like Nehemiah, step in? Because again, like Nehemiah, we have this convergence of prayer and action. Not acting without praying, but not praying without acting. So I want to close this this morning with a prayerful call to action from Oscar Romero, who I uh, showed us before. And it's called Prophets of the Future, Not Our Own. This is what we are about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is a difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Let's go back to this part. We can't do everything, and sometimes that becomes what stops us. But you don't have to. And that's liberating, because now you can do something. Find a small thing Problem with a purpose, helping a kid go to school, or the bigger thing too. Find your thing. What is God calling you to do? Step in, pray, act. That's what Nehemiah is calling us to through his life. That's what his experience was. And God will step in, and great things could happen. And we may not see the end result. And that's okay. Our job is just to be faithful with where we are and what we can do and to do it and to leave the results to God. We are his workers. We're not master builders. We're not messiahs. But thankfully, we follow someone who is the messiah, who is the master builder. And he can do it. And he wants people to partner with him and to be open to allow our hearts to meet his and then to go. And as we go now into communion, um, you know, I think of Nehemiah and the story arc and how the need was there for a greater rescue. There was 400 years of silence and then John the Baptist announces the coming of Messiah. And here we have Jesus who came for us and who gave himself. Um, Nehemiah built a wall. Jesus allowed his life to be torn down for us. Um, 
you stepped into our pain, into our struggle. And through that brought hope because he has conquered the worst things that we can imagine. And so we're going to celebrate today. Uh, We're going to take bread. We're going to take juice. And we're going to be, as we do so, let's remind ourselves that we, um, that God has called us into this type of life, that we are called actually to lay down our life for others, that we are called into a life of giving, of action, of doing um, for the sake of God and his kingdom and for the sake of the people that he loves, which are all everywhere and who are harassed and helpless, as Jesus said. So let me pray. God, thank you for the story of Nehemiah and for his willingness to step in to what you were placing on his heart. Despite the reservations he may have had, despite his um, uncertainty, God, thank you that you met him there and that you did great things and that the walls were rebuilt. God, we pray today as we are as far as few as we think about rebuilding and as we think about what you are building in our midst and as we think about Um, as we come to communion and we recognize the presence of Christ in our midst that unites us and brings us together. And God, we ask that you would uh, continue to place on our hearts the things that are on your heart for our community, both in terms of this body, but then also Halton and beyond. Where is it, God, that you are calling us? What is it you are calling us into as a body, but also as people. And God, may we come to you this morning knowing that it is in this place that we find our strength because you have conquered all that can distract and take away. And you are um, the living Christ who empowers us for the work you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.